Hi, everyone. I'm your host, Aviva Rumani, and welcome to episode 23 of KindredCast, Lion Tree's bi-weekly podcast featuring insights from dealmakers and thought leaders in the world of tech, media, and everything in between. Today, we're excited to present a conversation with Arie and Joanna Coles, the chief content officer for Hearst Magazines. In addition to being the first person to hold the title of CCO, she was the editor-in-chief of Hearst flagship Cosmopolitan and prior to that, Marie Claire. She also serves as the executive producer on the highly successful freeform scripted series called The Bold Type, based on her experiences in over 30 years of publishing. She and Arya talk about her early start as a journalist for the UK's The Spectator, the state of print, and the challenges and rewards of pulling double and triple duty in her role at Hearst, and as the first and only female board member at SNAP. Lion Tree was proud to have her speak at one of our recent Women in Media dinners, and her new book called Love Rules, How to Find a Relationship in a Digital World, comes out in April. Let's take a listen to this insightful and at times hilarious chat. Enjoy. I'm happy to be sitting here this morning with a formidable Joanna Coles, who is the chief content officer of Hearst Magazines and a good friend. Thank you for being here. My pleasure, I hope. Say that at the end of uh, our chat. Uh, I'm sure we will. Joanna, you are described as one of the most powerful people in media. You sit on the boards of Snap and is also producer of the hit TV show, The Bold Type, which is getting rave reviews and has been renewed for more seasons. And the author of the soon-to-be-released book called Love Rules, How to Find a Real Relationship in a Digital World, which comes out this April, I believe. You're also a public advocate for women's equality. You were a speaker at one of our Lion Tree Women's Leadership Dinners, which we appreciate. And you serve on the board of Women's Entrepreneurs in New York City, an initiative to expand female entrepreneurship with a focus on underserved women and communities. You're born in the UK. You came to the US in 1997 as the New York Bureau Chief of the Guardian newspaper before moving on to become the New York columnist for the Times of London. You joined Hearst in 2006 as editor-in-chief of Marie Claire, and in 2012, Joanna was named editor-in-chief of Cosmo, the world's largest women's media brand. Over the course of Joanna's career, she has won numerous prestigious awards for journalism and media leadership. So let's get started to talk about your life. And uh, I'm joking with you a little bit that I feel like I have the queen on our podcast today. Well, I have to say, when I hear myself introduced like that wonderful introduction, by the way, I think, oh, I would like to meet Joanna Coles. And then I realize, oh, it's just me. (laughs) You sell yourself short. Not really. It's just that um, those things have taken place over a period of 25 years. And in between, there was a lot of what felt like wasted space. Mm -hmm. But you still have a long way to go. Well, I'm still passionate about media. I'm still passionate about great quality content. And I'm really excited. There's so many more places to find it and to produce it for. So from that point of view, I think it gets more exciting, not less exciting. Most people that I've had on KindredCast, I've known for a long time through very... Um, stimulating business scenarios and experiences. And, you know, with you, it's a little bit different because we have done some business together and we do talk about business, but that's not how we started together. In fact, we started when I first met you in a very strange circumstance. And (laughs) I I would say I have the pajamas to uh, show for it now. I think people are wondering what's really going on. (laughs) Yeah, maybe we should tell them because, you know, we can all live the life of um, glamour in Los Angeles and La La Land, but we got to get back sometimes to New York and do some business. And not that you can't do business in LA, but in this case, 
we really had to get back to New York. And uh, do you want to take them through how we started? Or well, we were literally leaving LA and getting to New York, and I was a few steps ahead of you. Well, you were definitely a few steps ahead of me. So my memory is we met at a post-Oscar party, which was uh, at a fabulous house in the Hollywood Hills. And I had just decided I was going to pull an all-nighter, which is not something I particularly like to do. But I was moaning that I had to get to the airport for a 6am flight to get back to New York because I had to be back in New York for a meeting. And I know you had to be back in New York at 8.30 for Mm -hmm. a meeting. Mm -hmm. And you then left the party. I was moaning to one of our mutual friends and she said to me, goodness, why don't you ask REA for a lift back? And I was like, what are you talking about? And she said, well, he's driving to the airport now. I'm going to call him for you and see if he'll give you a lift. And you said, well, if you can get to Signature Airport in 25 minutes, I'll give her a lift back. So I left my hotel room to a friend to clear I leapt in my full party outfit, which was a pair of gold Gucci pants and a very nice silk shirt, and flagged down some poor random driver who was just trying to get home after some Oscar event and made him drive me to the airport. And you very kindly gave me a lift back. And my memory is that we... We had never met before. We'd never met. We'd briefly said hello, I think, at the party. Yeah, I came roaring up the steps and you said your bed is all made up here you go and I lay down on the bed and passed out with fatigue and the next thing I knew it was 8 30 in the morning in Manhattan and I was on the west side highway right. it was fantastic and well, you I had... Think we had a coffee in the morning on the plane and talked about the media industry I think for a few minutes we did we had a very stimulating conversation then you said I've got a helicopter would you like a lift uh, to the west side highway and I said yes please, that would be very helpful. And I got to my meeting and you got to your meeting. So I'm looking forward to doing that again this year, Aria. Uh, it's a rare occurrence, I have to say. You know, when business calls, we have to do it. And it was a great serendipitous moment to be able to meet you. And and then you kindly sent me a pair of pajamas monogrammed for the holidays a few weeks later in appreciation, which I love. Well, what I hadn't understood was that I was actually interrupting you and your wife's first trip on a plane <laughs> together. But by the time I'd arrived, I wasn't giving back. So it was very nice. Nice view, and I will be forever in your debt. It will tie us together for a very long time. Well, I hope the pajamas were comfortable. (laughs) Thank you very much. Yeah, I mean, I feel like every time we talk, we have a discussion about ideas that are stimulating and new projects. I mean, you're really a 360 brand, we say, which is you don't believe in just staying in one place. You really believe in creating new businesses off of your experience, etc. Well, I think of it a bit like I'm running the American team for the Olympics and you've got sprinters, you've got marathon runners, you've got shot putters, you've got pole vaulters and you have different training regimes for everybody. You have a different diet for everybody. You have different muscles that you're focusing on for everybody. But in the end, everybody's goal is to win a gold and for your team to outstrip everybody else so that's sort of how i think of it so you're competitive (laughs) not really (laughs) a little bit there would be no fun if there were no competition in it would you be comfortable winning the silver medal no there you go do you know one of the most interesting things that amy cuddy talks about in her book presence and about body language is if you analyze the three medals at the olympics the gold person always has their arms in the air in a huge v for victory the bronze also has their arms up in the air because they're just thrilled to have made the podium and the poor person with silver knows that the gold just failed to reach them or they failed to reach it and so they're utterly depressed yeah. so absolutely not a silver would almost rather have bronze than silver <laughs> or not even play it to begin with yeah oh wow well i do follow you on social media and i love listening and watching 
your um, activities because one of your Instagram posts or many of your Instagram posts show you running on a treadmill in your office while you're doing work. And your tagline said, there is no balance. Embrace the chaos. Is that your mantra? Well, I think if we try and set particularly women up, as we have done, seeking balance, then we are doomed to failure. I think you've got four children. The minute you have a child, you know there is no balance. They're either sleeping or not sleeping, and life exists somewhere in between. Any kind of good job requires moments of extreme focus and concentration, and any family life also requires those moments if somebody's ill or if things aren't going according to plan or you have an in-law or you have a child that's not behaving as expected. There are extremes of attention needed and emotion involved. So I think setting people up for balance is destined for failure, and we have to live at the extremes occasionally, and we have to be okay with that. That's right. And it's more intense. I like the intensity of life. I don't want to be living in some sort of balanced, dull place. Yeah, I've said this before, including on this podcast and other interviews, that balance is not a line between two compartments in a circle. It is a kaleidoscope. Everything is mixed in together every single day in life. Every single day is different. And you just have to bob and weave until you figure it out and optimize the scenario. Well, that's rather eloquently put. I'm not entirely sure I understand it. But I like the image of a kaleidoscope. And I do think that you literally have to take each day as it comes. In media, you have no idea what's going to happen by lunchtime. But also you have all the personal stuff too, which comes, you know, pouring in at certain times. And it all requires attention. Yeah. Well, you started your career as a journalist as I mentioned in the introduction, our mutual friend Carly Kloss uh, told me in preparation for this interview that she looks to you as a role model. Oh, God. Yeah. A saying that you have a reputation for being tenacious and that's what she loves about you. She doesn't think that you let anything stand in your way. Nothing's impossible, which is the motto I also stand by. Nothing's impossible. So when you started as a journalist, I mean, did you think of it yourself as moving into a career path that you felt like was going to be groundbreaking expansionary in nature? Or did you think, I'm just going to keep moving up the ranks as a journalist? Or did you think of yourself as a brand unto itself, where you could actually start to really craft a new strategy for media? Well, I started as a journalist on Fleet Street, which has a particular kind of culture, one which would not survive very long, I think, in today's climate. And you would walk out of the offices of the Daily Telegraph and on your left was St. Paul's. So you had God on your left and then you had the High Courts of London on your right. So you were sandwiched somewhere between God and the law. And there was journalism in the middle of it. And all I wanted to do was get the story. And I love Carly's description of me as tenacious. I will tell you very early on in my career, I kicked open a toilet door to talk to a girl who had been just released from the High Court she was pursued by a pack of reporters. I was the only female reporter. And of course, she went to the station to go home. And what did she do? She did what everybody does when they go to the station. She went to the bathroom and I leapt over. I was much more active then, despite my treadmill. I managed to vault over the thing to get into the bathroom, kicked open the door. The poor girl was in mid-pee. And I couldn't think of the right question to ask her. All I knew was that I had five minutes with her, which none of the male reporters reporters outside the bathroom door could have. And I realised in that moment, I never wanted to kick open a bathroom door again. 
I really needed to get my questions in advance and it probably wasn't worth it. But what was exciting and was... And good thing was, podcast didn't exist back then. Very good podcast <laughs> didn't exist back then because you would have been there with me. But what I did learn was that I could get it done if I needed to. And that was quite a useful moment of self-understanding. Yeah. I'm not quite sure what your question was, but I hope that sort of answered well, it. Well, that definitely tells me a lot about you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't do it again, I would just like to point out. <laughs> she wasn't a very interesting girl, unfortunately. Well, you've jumped, was through, really the problem. Uh, jumped through walls in other ways. Well, I've tried occasionally. Sometimes I've just slid down the wall too. <laughs> well, tell me about your time at Cosmo, because you were running Cosmo at a time where the media industry at large was going through major transition, still is to some extent, but successfully in a lot of areas. So we were in a print world back then, and then you were living through a transformation of the business into a digital world, into a mobile world. How is that happening, and, and how is that happening today? Do you think that has been a successful transition? Well, if you're a good editor, one of the things you're always doing is trying to understand what's going on in the culture. You're trying to understand the zeitgeist, and you're really spending a lot of time thinking about your reader. So it was absolutely clear that the reader was beginning to spend more time on her cell phone. Cosmo's the biggest women's media brand in the world. It's full of young women, young millennial and Gen Zers, and it was completely obvious they were spending time on their cell phone. Along comes Snapchat, which is just completely compelling. I have teenage sons, so I'd watch them really up their laugh quotient. Because the thing you do on Snapchat more than any other social media is you have fun and you laugh. And they were constantly laughing into their phones and pulling faces and things. So I was intrigued by it. And when I met the Snapchat team, I was sort of on board because I knew that this was a thing that made kids laugh. And so when I talked to Evan Spiegel, the co-founder, about his very prescient understanding of the fact the web was full of crap, that fake news was driving at us like a truck and his desire to create a closed environment like a digital newsstand where you would have reputable media brands with real information. I was very engaged in that idea and I was very excited for Cosmo to be part of it. We were one of the first 12 brands. Hearst now has seven brands on Snap. We're the biggest publisher on it. We're a huge believer in it. 180 million daily users. And it's really how millennials get their news now. I mean, 10 years ago, people talked about millennials getting their news from Jon Stewart. Now they get their news and they get a much wider variety of it from Wall Street Journal, from all the Hearst titles, from The Economist, from Snap from Discover Platform on mm -hmm. Snap, which is an awesome way to get information. And you're on your mobile. Snap is viewed as one of the most content friendly platforms from the start, right? Because... Think back to the days of Twitter or the days of uh, the onset of YouTube, and it wasn't immediately clear that they'd be working with the professional producers of content from day one. It was user generator or new forms of content. And Snap, I think, from the very beginning, always really valued the professionally produced content just in a new medium. Yeah, Evan talks very articulately about the power of the human editor. He always wanted human editors involved and it's on a separate platform. So unlike Twitter, and I'm a huge Twitter fan and I use Twitter all the time, but everything is mixed up all the time, notwithstanding their new algorithms. So unimportant or bullshitty information is slapped up against decent media brands that you can rely on. So that's a very jolting environment in which to take news. On Snap, it's literally a digital newsstand and you can choose what you want to follow. You can subscribe and it's much clearer presentation of information. 
And this is obviously a time where you had these arrangements with Hearst and Snap before you joined the board. Oh, yeah, this was way before I joined the board. I was just really passionate about what they were trying to do because I could see the audience moving to mobile. Yeah. When did you join the board of Snap? And tell me the reasons behind it, because this is your only public board, I believe. It is my only public board. And I joined because I was so excited by the company. It's an incredibly interesting group of people. The two founders, Bobby Murphy and Evan Spiegler, quite brilliant. The way they talk about the future is invigorating and exciting. And I hope I've been able to bring thoughts on media and how media is financed to them too. So far, so good. It's been really fun. And it's great to have a reason to go out to Venice Beach. (laughs) I'm sure. Snap is one of many of the platforms out there today trying to service an audience. Obviously, Snap's 180 million daily users, much bigger than many of them. How does Snap differentiate itself as a person that really understands the content business in reaching that audience versus other platforms? I think the fact it provides information on a closed platform, so you are not slap up against somebody you have never heard of, that when you go on the Discover digital newsstand, it's reputable brands with a specific menu of stories they want to serve you for that day. You have everybody. You've got the Daily Mail, you've got the Wall Street Journal, you've got Vogue, you've got Harper's Bazaar, you've got Cosmo, you've got Esquire. I mean, real reputable brands. And it gives them the opportunity, you know, brands that were always thought of as being monthly or daily to be able to update at all times if there's news going on. And do you think that the way that the audience is now consuming content is shifting? Is the audience more fickle? I mean, we think back to overseeing uh, a bunch of publishers or editors or writers with different forms of content. Are you telling them now we need to have more short form content, more pithy content, you got to capture, evade the reader's attention. It's a very crowded world out there. Or you're saying more investigative, more long-term, more differentiated content. I mean, how has the content shifted given the mobile environment and the different forms of content available? I think what the audience is up against is an enormous amount of content. And what you are trying to do is produce better content. More isn't better. Better is better. So that can be short form daily content, which I think Cosmo, particularly on Snap, is doing a brilliant job at. And then there's absolutely no reason why you can't have long form too. And we have long form in our Snap daily offering. And it's surprisingly effective and people spend surprising amounts of time on it. We also have great long form in the magazine. We have fun stuff in the magazine. I think what's exciting for a brand like Cosmo or any decent media brand, The Times 2, is that you can increase your scale and the points of contact with your audience. And that's really exciting. So I used to, when I was growing up, get a copy of Cosmo, I'd roar home to my bedroom, throw myself on my bed, devour it over two hours and promise that I was going to live my life in a completely different way. But that only happened to me once a month or occasionally once a week when I was buying a weekly magazine. Now you can do it by having it in the palm of your hand. And my goal, certainly when I was at Cosmo, was to be the friend in your pocket so that you always had someone you could connect with. And if you were having a bad day or you were having a fun day, if you wanted to share something, if you just wanted to be cheered up, you always had your friend in your pocket that you could reach for. And I think that as a media producer, as a content producer, is really exciting. Well, how important is the brand Cosmo? Because it's not just the articles, it's not just the content that you're producing, but The brand gives it a certain element of credibility, I'm sure. You told me, actually, a great statistic that if you looked at the Statue of Liberty 
He said it's about 305 feet tall. The average Facebook feed on a given day, actually, if you stacked it up, is actually around 300 feet tall as well. So look at the Statue of Liberty and saying, there's a lot of clutter in here. There's a lot of crap in there, I would you're, say. You're kinder, yeah. Um, yeah, <laughs> there is. And so you need to be able to differentiate. You need to be able to have people that have a strong editorial voice. And for a magazine like Cosmo, I think we've seen it outstrip all its competitors. And not everybody will survive. You have to be committed to producing really good quality content. You have to finance it. You have to have advertising support or circulation revenue support. But you also have to have something to say and you have to have a point of view. Otherwise, you don't stand out. And you see the brands that are surviving and really really doing well in this environment are all brands that are unafraid to have a point of view. Mm -hmm. And that's true of television. It's true of understanding what an HBO show is or an AMC show. It's true now of Freeform, where our show The Bold Type is on. It's definitely true of Cosmo. And it doesn't mean you have to appeal to everybody, but it does mean that you have to appeal to your core audience and they need to understand what you stand for. And with Cosmo, it stands for Young Women's Empowerment. We got your back and we know that occasionally Generally, you will wake up hungover, full of remorse. <laughs> Sounds like we're projecting here. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're remembering. We're remembering. So if you have certain areas, let's say ESPN, for example, mm -hmm. sports on television, right? Where is the ESPN in digital? Or can it easily transfer? A lot of people said MTV didn't do a good job transferring music as a brand on television to a digital format. So there are these large swaths of genres fashion being one of them, that are not yet represented in a branded way in a multimedia digital format. Can someone own that holistically? Well, clearly, we've still got a ways to go. And fashion actually isn't something that translates incredibly well to Facebook or to the small screen because you can't see it well enough. I mean, that said, I find it astonishingly easy to buy vast amounts of clothes off Net-A-Porter on my cell phone. So I may be the exception to that. I mean, there is something about print and the printiness of print that plays really well for fashion. Partly it's the size of the spread, the density of the colour that works on great white paper. I mean, if you look at magazines like Harper's Bazaar or Elle, they are printier than ever and more popular than ever with their readers because they are respite to digital. And I think we've reached a moment in the culture where our initial extreme excitement about the cell phone has now been met with our greater understanding of our behavior when we spend time on it. And so we understand that actually it's great to spend a couple of hours on your cell phone scrolling through if you're on a plane or if you're sitting waiting for somewhere, but it doesn't actually leave you feeling refreshed. It leaves you feeling listless, slightly irritated, like you perhaps haven't taken in as much information as you should have done, given the fact that you've just scrolled through 300 feet of content. And so I think we've reached a point now where people understand that, of course, you're going to have digital in your life. You're never going to put the phone down, but you need it to be supplemented by other things. Reading a magazine, reading a book is restorative in the same way that when television came along and everybody said, oh, my God, radio's dead. We're never going to read another newspaper. Actually, that's not what happened. It became additive. We started writing about television shows, but we didn't stop reading. We didn't stop listening to the radio. Who would have thought the podcast would be making a comeback now, a pure listening form, which is after all what the radio was when it came out. So I think we get overexcited. We 
predict the death of everything that went before and then we learn to live with these things alongside each other. So we're not seeing the death of print. What we're actually seeing is print responding and getting better. We're seeing television and dramas getting better when they have the threat of unscripted taking away from them. Do you remember the whole moment, you know, American Idol was right at the beginning. Oh my God, television was dead. It was all about reality Reality shows. Not at all. And in fact, what happens is the challenger comes along and the people who are really good get better at what they were doing and the landscape expands. So I think it's great that we have digital content. I'm more than happy to be involved making it. I love making print content and I love the fact that you respond to both in a different way. Yeah, we always try to lay out a zero-sum game scenario where this wins, this loses. Right. And there's absolutely no reason why you can't be on Snapchat and Instagram and Facebook and WhatsApp. It is not zero-sum. And that's not how people are. And the tension that exists while it all coexists together in some competitive way for the audience's attention is a healthy dynamic. It creates new innovation and business models and expertise. Absolutely. And it it creates a market for people to work in too. I mean, the fight then becomes for financing and for ad dollars. But I think if you're a creative person, this is an incredibly exciting time to be alive. There are many more options, places to work and to produce content. And content's getting better, not worse. Exactly. So, uh, Joanna, you've been a great advocate for women's issues and women's rights and women's empowerment around the world. And it's been a passion for your career. You're the only woman on the SNAP board, for example. How has that affected your career? How is that playing out today for you in terms of being a real role model for women in the workplace? Well, first of all, I never think of myself as a role model. And secondly, I wasn't actively, determinedly going after women's rights so much as just equality. I mean, it just seemed to me clear when I was going into the workforce, I should be paid the same as the man in the cubicle next to me, unless he was unbelievably brilliant and working three times as hard, in which case you would be able to see his work. And in my business, we work in quite a transparent business. So if if someone is trying to bullshit you, you can say, yeah, but I see what you write every day. It's not really as good as you say it is, is it? I'm just a passionate believer in equality of opportunity and equality in pay and men and women working together. And I've had great mentors, both male and female. And actually one of the role models that I do think I've helped create, which I'm very proud of, is the role model in the bold type, because one of my great anxieties was that apart from Mary Tyler Moore growing up, for me, there were no female role models on television. There are almost none now. And I love to point to the example of Modern Family, which is such a self-regarding title. I love that show. I think it's absolutely brilliant. It's not very modern. The only thing that's modern about it is that it has a gay couple at the centre of it. Actually, it took them forever to find a working woman on it. And Claire ends up inheriting her father's business, which is actually not what most people end up doing. And she's still the ditzy boss who can't ever get things done by intention. It's almost that any success is by accident. And it drives me crazy that there aren't more good representations of working women on television. So with the bold type, which was based around the experience of three young women working at Cosmo, it's fictional. But there is a central character played by Melora Hardin, who is a role model boss. And she can be annoying. She can make mistakes. She can be all sorts of things. But essentially, she feels real. And the point of her is she's not 
the trope or the cliche bitch boss. She's actually very supportive of her younger staff, which is certainly what I tried to be. But more importantly, it was actually my experience working in both Fleet Street and then coming to work in the media world in New York. I had tremendous help from women who had really had to battle and were desperate to bring women up. So this idea that women don't reach down and help other women was not my experience. And I didn't want that reflected on television. I wanted a really strong role model. And you said it in the intro, but the show launched on Freeform last summer and was a runaway hit. Absolutely. It's got a great reputation and great ratings, and I've heard great critical acclaim about it as well. Yeah, and it's funny. It doesn't take itself too seriously. Yeah. It's very realistic. A lot of it's based on... I mean, I keep journals, and I sort of dumped my journals onto the poor writers in the writer's room. Let's talk about your new book, then, since mm. we are talking about creativity. I would love to talk um, about my new book. Love Rules. Yes. How to Find a Real Relationship in a Digital World. It's coming out in April, as I mentioned. What was your inspiration in writing it? And what is love hacks that you reference in the book? And why is it important? Well, love is important because it's the single biggest indicator of whether or not you will live a long and happy life is who you love and who loves you back and the quality of your real human relationships. DNA and genetics aside, having social relationships with love in them is unbelievably important to your well-being. So that's why it's important. And what became clear to me when I was watching people using social media to meet people and watching the avalanche of dating apps, which I think are a very good thing. And this is not in any way a rage against digital at all. But it is a reminder of the importance of real life relationships and how they can get squandered by people's excitement around digital. And we live at a time when we are encouraged to get followers and Facebook friends and we begin to think that they are a substitute for the real thing and they're really not. And of course, the more you use and the more you connect with people online, the more your neural pathways gravitate towards that, making real life connection actually quite hard. And a lot of millennials as we know, as anyone who's run a millennial workforce knows, they would rather email someone in the next cubicle than get up and go and talk to them. They would rather put needles of heroin in their eyes than pick up a telephone and actually speak to someone at the other end of it. And it's a real problem. It's a problem in business. It's a problem in romantic relationships. It's a problem in family Family, relationships. So the book is really about that. And one of the things I found fascinating was how many dates people were going on. It's easy to find a date. It's never been easier to go on a date. And yet it seems really hard to find love. There is an epidemic of loneliness. The British government has just appointed a minister for loneliness, which seems an extraordinary statement. And so really it's a a man or a woman. It's a woman. Also, interestingly, the Minister for Sport. And I was struck by how, especially when people were meeting online on dating apps, they might have 250 texts or a thousand texts back and forth about setting up a date. And then you go on the date, often full of excitement and hope. And of course, if you just picked up the phone and talked to them for three minutes, you would have figured out whether or not this was someone you actually really wanted to waste Mm -hmm. the time meeting. And so it's really 15 rules to find a relationship that brings you fulfillment and that you can contribute to and bring fulfillment to someone else. Do you think that you figured it out personally? Uh, Well, uh, every day is a challenge, sorry. (laughs) Every day is a challenge. Let me put it this way. I have two teenage sons who sometimes speak to me, not always, depends on their mood, and I'm still married. Okay, that's good. So, well, one day at a time. You do seem like you have passion for life in general. I mean, I think giving advice on love makes sense because in my time that I've known you, 
you love the time we live in right now. You are exhilarated by the moment. You have new projects all the time that we're talking about. And it's a great moment for life, for journalism, for media, for technology, for brands, for relationships, for the millennials in the future. I mean, maybe that's an optimistic summation of it all, but it does feel like you're in your moment right now. I'm energized by what's going on right now. And I think that we just don't want to forget that actually real relationships actual conversations, having dinner with friends, really important. And there is no digital substitute for that. I mean, it's fantastic to have video chats with your friends when they're not in the room with you. I love all that. But there is no substitute for sitting down with someone at the end of the day. Yeah. So who are you most influenced by these days? I'm probably influenced by sort of bright young people who've got ideas that I couldn't have imagined. I'm very non-hierarchical about ideas in the workplace. I love everybody putting in their two pennyworth and I like trying to create an environment where people feel unafraid to give their ideas, even if they're ludicrous. So I would say I'm most influenced by sort of smart young people coming out of college with lots of ideas and using language in a way that I hadn't thought of. Yeah. We have a similar philosophy here at Liontree where we have a meritocracy on ideas. Any age group, any level, we want ideas from everyone. It's a scalable feature for the human mind, right? There's no cap on how many ideas that one individual could have. So we want to take advantage of that. We have to manage it, but we want that forum to be part of the culture. And I think that's absolutely right. And it's clearly why you're so successful. And I think good ideas build on other good ideas and someone can have a kernel of a good idea and it takes three more people to evolve that idea to something which is marketable or usable. I love being involved in that process and I love being involved and Hearst has been very good in letting me do this in talking to people that wouldn't seem like a natural partner for media creation or content creation but in fact turn out to be very excited by it. So Airbnb would be a good example. And I know you know the co-founders of them. For a pure digital brand like that, they suddenly woke up to the fact they wanted a physical iteration, a physical manifestation of what the Airbnb brand stood for, which is why we were able to create a magazine with them. And if you'd said to them four or five years ago, you're going to have a magazine, people would have thought you were insane. In fact, it turns out it's a brilliant marketing tool for them. But also what a wonderful, welcoming gift when you walk into a home. There's a magazine full of ideas and inspiration for your next trip. And it's by the people with whom you are staying. Yeah. So I typically ask at the end of our uh, segment, how very disappointing are we at the end? I'm just getting going. <laughs> I ask what your favorite TV show is, mm-hmm. what your favorite book is, and what your favorite podcast is. But I'm just going to presume now that your favorite book is Love Rules, your favorite TV show is The Bold Type, and your favorite podcast is this Kindred cast now. Uh, well, I think enough said, Aria. Enough said. <laughs> You are producing content as we speak. so. Well, it would be unfair of me to choose my own things. I would say I love the Popular Mechanics podcast other than this podcast. Okay, thanks. I love the Popular Mechanics, which is really about how to do everything. It's how to ice fish. It's how to make leather. It's how to fly a plane when the pilots had a heart attack. It's a very interesting, fun way of just actually explaining how to do things. And I don't watch very much television, but I was just on a plane, which is when I do occasionally watch it, and watch better things, which was done by Louis C.K. and Pamela Adlon. One of the funniest things I have seen for a long time. Really well done. Great tone. And I'm so sad about what happened to Louis C.K. And I wish someone had called him out on it earlier so that he didn't have to go through this 
process of having all his work cancelled because a lot of his work is so very good. Yeah, it's hard to separate the work from the person given what we've read about, right? Or is it easy to do that? Well, that's one of the great questions, isn't it? It's one of the great questions about art. Does the art make up for the bad behaviour? Does the fact that, you know, Leo Tolstoy was a terrible husband negate the fact that he wrote the best novels probably ever written? You know, War and Peace and Anna Karenina, who knows? I think about that question all the time. But I will tell you, Better Things is a really good television show really original voice, very funny, and saying something interesting about the human experience, which I hadn't really seen on television before. And I was crushed when I saw that it was Louis C.K. who'd done it and that, you know, I'm sure there won't be any more of these episodes. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll check it out. Joanna, thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. I really enjoyed our conversation as always. Thank you. Back at you. Okay, perfect. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed our show today. If you want to check out any prior episodes, you can always find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Feel free to leave a review there as it helps people find the show. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at KindredCast for behind-the-scenes photos and info. Keep listening and see you next time. Audiation.